we go. The Gospel of John. And the way we're going to start it is we're just going to jump right in. Okay? So the first three verses of the Gospel of John is this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. What an amazing opening to this gospel. The writer, he doesn't introduce himself. He doesn't even mention his name. He doesn't try to convince us that he's trustworthy or that he has the authority to write something like this. You would find an introduction like that in the epistles, but not here. He just crashes right in. He's even using the philosophical terms of his day to introduce to us the true focus of the gospel. The writer doesn't, you know, focus in on the wrongs of, of his time. He doesn't paint a bleak picture here in order to then like introduce the light as like the remedy to the darkness. He doesn't do that. He just lets the light shine full force. The beginning of the gospel is God. Now here is John, who was the youngest of the disciples. He was a man who was once a fisherman from Galilee, but he left all to follow Jesus. And as he sits down to write this gospel, he's now an old man. In fact, it's possible that the gospel of John was one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. As an old man, of course, he knew of Matthew. He knew of Mark. He knew of Luke. These guys were his friends. He was a co-laborer with them. He had no doubt read their books. And yet now here is John as an old man. And he knows, guys, you did a great job. But there were so many other things that Jesus did. And he wants to sit down and tell the world. In fact, he tells us later on in the gospel, as far as his purpose for writing, in John 20, verse 30 and 31, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So, so beautiful. We get all of these additional facts, this additional information of things that Jesus did that isn't like exactly in line with the synoptic gospels it's background or other works and other information but it's so that you might believe and have life in his name the gospel says in the beginning and when somebody says in the beginning it's important to know what beginning they're talking about beginning of what right the beginning of your day, be like, in the beginning, coffee. Uh, you know, okay, that makes sense if you're talking about today. You know, in the beginning. Are you talking about the beginning of the church service? 
What, that like beginning, it starts with like prayer and worship. The beginning of this week, well, here it is. You've gathered together on the first day of the week to worship the Lord. The beginning of the year, maybe you woke up a little bit late because there were so many fireworks. You know, like what beginning? Beginning of your life? The beginning of what? The Bible starts with the beginning. Genesis 1.1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is the beginning of what God was doing concerning the redemption of mankind. What? Did you know that when God created the heavens and the earth, it wasn't just so that he could have something pretty to look at? Did you know that? He wasn't doing it so that he could have like another marble to play with in the midst of his galaxy or his galaxies. When God created the heavens and the earth, it says that he created the earth to be inhabited. There's a purpose to him creating the earth. Isaiah 45 verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. When God created mankind, in, in a way that's called a beginning. In Matthew 19 verse four, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Is this the beginning that John is talking about here in the gospel? No. It actually goes back even further. Before that beginning. Before creation. In fact, before time even existed because creation is the beginning of time. So before time even existed, John's epistle starts off kind of similar in first John one, one that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So before anything else, before anything was created, the beginning of the gospel of John is the beginning that had no beginning. It's the beginning that is eternal. I guess you could say before the starting point is what John is getting at here. Before the starting point was the personal, uncaused cause of all things. Before there was anything at all, there was the word. In the beginning was the word. And that word was a person. He was with God and he was God. 
It's the farthest path back we can go in our, in our mind, in our thinking. Eternity past. In eternity past, there has always been that which John is referring to here. In fact, the, the, the prophets make mention of this. In Micah 5.2, but you, oops, what's that? There we go. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Or as the New American Standard puts it, whose goings forth are from the days of eternity. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, uncreated, the creator of all things. That's what John tells us in John 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. A couple of weeks ago, a lot of you guys know Zach, and um, a couple of weeks ago, he was talking to somebody that he assumed was a Christian. And as they were talking, they were talking about the things of God and they were having, making some good connections. And that was until the issue of Jesus came up. And once that happened, the person that he was talking to, they didn't believe in the deity of Christ. So he asked me, he's like, look, I think I know the answer to this question, but just help me to understand. If someone can be so right in all of their beliefs about God and yet wrong on who Jesus is, why is that a deal breaker? It's a great question. And in the answer to why that's a deal breaker is something I want to help you understand this morning as well. The way I started out explaining it to Zach is that what it does, instead of glorifying God, to deny the deity of Christ is to actually make God like us. It actually demeans and degrades the glory of God. Anything that takes away from the glory of God or ascribes his glory to something else, that's called blasphemy. Now, let me explain this. If you and I want to know God, if you and I want to love God, if you and I want to worship God, what we have to remember is what Jesus said in John 4. John 4, 23 and 24 he says, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If we love God, we have to be committed to worshiping God in truth. We can't just get all into worshiping in the spirit because it feels good. We have to be in spirit and truth. 
There are those who do not like the Bible. There are Christians who avoid the Bible. And the reason they avoid the Bible is because they actually believe that the Bible is too restrictive. That's not worship. That's not pure. That's saying, I want to worship God in the ways that feel really great to me. But if you try to get me to back it up scripturally, hey, don't go there. Why are you being all restrictive? I just want spirit. No, God is looking for those that will worship him in spirit, but in truth. God puts the guideposts. So we want to worship him accurately, not just whatever comes to our imagination. Because I mean, after all, like, right? Like you could just think that your favorite food, whatever, you could just label that as worship and be like, I don't need church. I just need cupcakes, right? Right, like spirit, man, I'm into this. You know, no, God has given us the guideposts. He wants us to worship him, not according to our own imagination, but according to how he has revealed himself to us in scripture. What does the Bible say? Deuteronomy 6, 4, the great Shema of Israel It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then from there, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the Lord our God is one Lord. There is only one God. The Bible is adamant about that. There is one God. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me, there is no savior. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though you have not known me. There is no one like him. So there's no other God, and there's no one, no being beside him that is like him. You can't say there is one who is of similar substance to God. The big word for that or the big term for that is homoousius, of similar substance. The correct theological position is homoousius, which is same substance. And I'll get to that in just a second, but there was a massive debate among the early church on that term. Homoousius or homoousius? Of similar substance or of same substance? The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 7, 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
And yet here we are as Christians and we want to know God and we want to know God and worship him according to how he's revealed himself. And so to do that, you should read your Bible. And as you read your Bible, you're reading and happily reading along. And then all of a sudden you run into an interesting dilemma. Or maybe I should say trilemma. Because as we read scriptures, we find verses concerning Jesus like these ones. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then later in verse 14, the word was made flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We read John 20, 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. We read Acts 20, 28. It says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. This is an awesome deity of Christ verse. You might ask, how? It's simple. When did God bleed? He purchased the church. God purchased the church with his own blood. Or Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So immediately you can look at that and you go, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Isaiah says multiple places, there is no other God besides me. So you read it and you go, okay, I got it. Jesus is God. Okay. But then you keep reading your Bible and you find verses like Hebrews 1.8. But unto the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And you go, wait, here's God speaking to Jesus, saying that Jesus is God. Okay, but there's only one God. God himself says there's no God beside me, nor will there ever be. And yet here's God saying to Jesus, you're God. And then you keep reading. And you find Acts 5, 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Look, your lied to the Holy Spirit is lying not to men, but to God. Okay, and then you keep reading and you find that the Holy Spirit has the incommunicable attributes of God. You know, okay, what is an incommunicable attribute? So there, God has attributes that are like, that he shares, right? God is love, but yet the Bible says we love because he first loved us. So all of a sudden, because God is love, we become loving. 
Because God is gracious, we become gracious, right? We begin to manifest in our life the fruit of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit in us that makes us, you know, appear to be more like God. But those are like things that God does in us. But there's things about God that we will never be like. Like, for instance, God is eternal. Like, we will have eternal life, but we're not infinite, and we'll never be infinite. God is omnipresent. Like he doesn't share that. Nobody can say, you know, I have this spiritual gift, omnipresence. Like that's incommunicable. Omniscient, like he knows everything. In fact, he's not ever having a new thought. Right? Like the entirety of his knowledge is ever before him now. There's no learning or progressing with God. He doesn't share that. It's alone, that alone is his. And yet those incommunicable attributes belong to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved in all the works of God, in the work of creation, in the work of the incarnation of Christ, in the work of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the work of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is involved. So you can look at this and go, Okay, well, the Holy Spirit is God. You go, okay, well, like, how do I work this out then? Maybe Jesus is the Father, and sometimes Jesus, like, like ghosts himself and, like, becomes the Holy Spirit. No, that's a heresy. That's called modalism, okay? That's, like, God manifesting himself in different forms. That's why people sometimes will be like, oh, uh, the Trinity is, like, water, and then like water can become like steam or it can be like ice. No, that's heresy. It's not like God switches around to match whatever like the necessity is. That's not the way God works. You keep reading your Bible and you find things like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That basic verse, sorry, my voice. Okay, that basic verse, you find out something. You find that the Father is not the Son. If the Father is the Son, then who's giving who? Right? If the Father just shows up as the Son, he's not really a Father. I cannot be my own dad. That's meaningless. Nonsense. So there's difference within the persons. Or you keep reading and you find John 15, 26. But when the comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. Okay, so now you see that the spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. They're different. Okay? But there's only one God. And yet the Holy Spirit is God. Yet Jesus is God. Yet the Father is God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. What? 
but I want to worship God the way he's revealed himself to me in the Bible. I want to know him. There are times when you see all three together, like at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3. Oh, thank you so much. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If the father is the son, is the Holy Spirit, this is a really weird scene. Like here's Jesus in the water throwing his voice. This is my son. And then like doing like magic tricks of imagery, like look at the dove. You know, and in our own baptism, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not the names, the name. Okay, so all this has to go together somehow. And why does John begin his gospel with this? Like if John's going to say, this is the good news, and he begins it with this. We know that there's only one God and that God is perfect. And in order to be perfect, if you're truly perfect, it means that you need nothing to be what you are. Because need implies lack, and then lack shows that you're not complete. A God who needs is not perfect. In order to be completely perfect, God is what theology says is self-existent. Like he is a, a perf he's perfect within himself. And yet, worshiping God according to how he's revealed himself in the Bible, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, we see like 1 John 4, 8. He that does not love does not know God, for God is love. It's never that God became love. This is an attribute of who God is. God is love. In order for there to be love, there has to be something to love. If God created man in order to have something to love, God isn't love as an attribute of who he is. God became love. Does that make sense? So in order for him to be love, he either becomes that or he is that. The Bible says he is that. A God who's all bound up within himself as like a hard singularity could not be perfect and yet love at the same time. 
In fact, even if within the world, there's only three monotheistic religions. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Islam, the whole basic is like, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Hard singularity. No doubt within Islam, you do not have a God of love. You have a God that you need to submit to. You, need, you have a God you need to appease. A God you need to prove yourself to. That's the God of Islam. Not a God of love. A God of authority and submission, yes, but not a God of love. In order for a God to be <coughs> all bound up there within himself, couldn't be perfect and be love at the same time, and then to create in order to be love, like I said, he would not be perfect. And yet the Christian view of God, we see a God eternally existent in three distinct persons, there has always been the lover, the father. There has always been the beloved son. There has always been the spirit of love between them. We worship a God who has always been and always will be the God of love. We worship a God of relationship. For there has always been perfect relationship within the Godhead. And you being created in his image, no wonder you long for relationship as well. We worship a God who communicates. And there has always been perfect communication within the Godhead. And that brings us back to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Why does John begin his, his gospel like that? Uh, Titus kind of gives us a clue. Titus tells us this. Titus 1.2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Before the world began, who's he going to promise it to? Like my salvation, your salvation, a hope of heaven forever. Who did he promise it to? Himself. The Father to the Son. Theology calls this the eternal covenant. The persons of the Godhead entering into before time even existed. In this covenant, the father promises to give his son. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The son gives himself to the father as a sacrifice without spot capable of producing that desired result of redemption. Look at this. First Peter 1, 18 through 20. 
knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Before the world began, before the verse three of the gospel of John, right there in verse one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Holy Spirit administering and empowering under the execution of this covenant down to like Hebrews 9, 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is your redemption. This is your salvation. This is your rescue from the penalty of sin before there was sin. This is your hope of heaven before there's earth. This is in the heart of God before there's anything else. Redemption in the Godhead before the cosmos began. And to think of it, that today you are invited by God himself into a loving and intimate relationship. The God who is three in one, the God who has always been and will always be a God of love, the God who has always been and will always be a God of relationship, a God who has always been and will always be a God of communication. And he has invited you into the perfection of that with himself. That's the God who shed his blood to redeem you. The lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. The promise of eternal life before the world began. The Athanasian Creed says this. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there's one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. And the Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. The triune God, who within himself set in motion your redemption. The triune God, who brought about that ultimate sacrifice to its completion. The triune God, who conquered death on your behalf. That's the triune God, the same one, who comes to make your life his dwelling place. Again, let's read those first three verses again. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Why does John start his gospel like this? Because the gospel doesn't start with you. The gospel doesn't start with me. The gospel doesn't start with our problems or our society and the, the, the dangers that are out there. The gospel doesn't start with the backdrop of, of all the bad. The gospel starts with God. And he alone is the author and the perfecter of our faith. The gospel starts with him. And so let us stand in adoration of him and worship him because he is our God and there is no savior besides him. Let's pray.